My son is 11. He and I have a spiritual practice of gratitude. We do most nights where we say what we are thankful for and we take time to pray. I've had a lot of practice with impromptu prayers laying next to that child for years now. Cuddled up before bed, praying for things like pets and friends and even tacos because we have our priorities. <laughs> Recently, Aiden said to me, I just want you to know, Mom, your cuddles are not going to last forever. I'm starting to grow out of liking them. I think you have a year or two left. <laughs> Mama's sadness when he said this. But I was also so grateful to be raising a child who could state what he wanted, describe his discomfort, and not feel the need to justify his feelings to me. I don't need to know why he doesn't want cuddling. To stay in close relationship with him, it is my job to honor his request. My son did not say this because I am not an amazing cuddler mom, because I am. <laughs> he said this because he is growing and he is changing and he wants to indicate what brings him solace. His needs are evolving and he is learning how to advocate for himself and I really want to encourage that. I dream of that kind of acceptance, that kind of comfort, in creating congregations of radical sanctuary. I want your descendants to be sitting here in another 150 years celebrating the 300th anniversary of this church. And growth like that, longevity like that, requires all of us to do hard work to become places of refuge when I pop into coffee houses around town, as I do, because I stop and do my homework sometimes before I drive back to Milwaukee, I want to hear people saying that this church welcomes everyone, not in a manner that sets them at ease, but in a manner that sets everyone who comes here at ease. To be a congregation of welcome, of sanctuary, we, must be willing to move beyond what we have witnessed or experienced and move into new behaviors that build trust. Whether we are greeting someone who has experienced assault, anxiety, had an amputation, has ADHD or autism, has recently given birth or has cancer, has experienced a traumatic car accident, Maybe they have diabetic neuropathy. Maybe they've experienced falls. Maybe they've had frostbite. Maybe they experience a neuroatypical behavior. Maybe they have peripheral vascular disease, PTSD, or panic attacks. Anyone who lives with pain or discomfort may need a gentler welcome a more gradual way of building trust. 
And that is how we build a foundation for our church to be a place of sanctuary. For many, churches are a place of pain. People with painful memories of their churches of origin may want to join us here. They may want to try this place out to experience community. And today I'm calling on all of us to practice good boundaries with one another so that we can invite people here for the next 150 years and have them feel radical sanctuary. For many people, touch is stressful. Or touch that is completely wonderful in consenting relationships with two adults who do not have power over one another is not okay where there is a power differential, like in that of a minister and a congregant or a doctor and a patient. It is for that reason that ministers need to keep very good boundaries with their congregants. It isn't because we don't adore one another. It is because Healthy boundaries create a culture of healing. A practice of sanctuary is one rooted in love, justice, and understanding that our liberation is bound together. We have to work together to achieve this. In the chaplaincy I practice at Planned Parenthood, I often sit with people who are victims of rape, molestation, and physical trauma. I rarely know the pain they bring with them to the clinic. Most people just look like people to me. They do not wear their list of suffering on their forehead. It is rarely described in their chart. I sit with people who are wearing little more than a paper sheet. I accompany them through traumatic events. Sometimes the stories I'm told are harrowing. It would make me feel better to pat their arm or in a moment where I might want to comfort them to touch their knee. And yet this would be wrong to do as I hold ministerial authority over them. I am the chaplain. I have a power differential that I am well aware of and I go out of my way to ask, may I sit with you? Do you want company? Would you like to share more of your experience of being here? May I touch your arm? Everything changes when I ask permission and when the answer I receive is fully accepted by me. Sometimes I'm setting up my own boundaries. I might say, if at any point you need to hold my hand, you may. I'm drawing the boundary of what touch is okay with me. If you want to talk about, about that, I am okay holding space for you, I might say. Or if you would prefer quiet, that is okay too. As we build up a practice of being builders of sanctuary, we too are called to approach people in a spirit of consent. That consent builds trust. Trust builds sanctuary. And I think we want to be a people of sanctuary. A few days ago, I put up a great video on the Bradford Facebook page. There's a little boy, he looks to me to be about five years old. He's wearing the welcome apron for school. 
On the apron, there are these removable pictures. Some of them show a smile, or a fist bump, or a hug, or a handshake. He's selected the ones that are okay with him. Then each child in the class lines up for their morning greeting. He stands at the door of the classroom where other children come up and they point on the apron to the kind of greeting they would like to have. The children are learning to be part of a culture of consent and that no one's way of greeting is wrong so long as it is agreed upon by both parties. That builds trust. That builds safety. I wonder, should we have stickers on our name tags here indicating the kind of greetings we welcome? Hug, fist bump. At Meadville, where I go to seminary, another student um, and I developed a custom fist bump for Meadville. We've put it on video, we walk around, we teach everybody our new fist bump. It's the Meadville fist bump. Wouldn't it be great if Bradford had our own fist bump? We could have a contest to figure out what the new fist bump is. My son was discussing the sermon with me last night, and he and I were trying to create one. We were like a double U, you know, like a double bump. We'll figure this out. Often when I examine culture of any place, I look to the history to get a handle on how we build community to do the hard work of cultural change. It's so easy to say, but we always do this. In the history of Bradford, since the days of Florence Bach, when she was a minister here, I am aware that some ministers at Bradford used their ministerial authority to ask their congregants to help them with personal troubles, to comfort them, to be friends, or even ministers who put themselves in a position where congregants felt obliged to care for their minister. I'm not going to do that with you. Some behaved in this way because that was how they were taught to minister. In fact, this past couple of weeks in my UU History and Polity class, when we were reading about the first women in our Unitarian Universalist ministers, many of those women identified that their spiritual ancestors were taught that if they did not physically comfort people, they did not have value as ministers. Now, if you missed my dear friend Kimberly Carlson's sermon last year here on the Prophetic Sisterhood, let me recap a bit of our UU history. I'll also put it back up on Facebook so that you can listen to it. The Prophetic Sisterhood describes the struggles of a courageous group of 19th century women who found a place in the liberal denominations of American religion. They left the security of their homes, they endured great hardships in the fulfillment of their desire to minister to congregations on the western frontier, and we were one of those congregations. Their questioning of traditional ministerial roles led to the creation of a domestic ministry whose scope extended far beyond the pulpit to suffrage, social settlements, and the peace movement. UU Reverend Linda Simmons writes of the Prophetic Sisterhood, many of those who became part of that were called the Iowa Sisterhood, and they found voices and courage in these transcendentalist salons they were having. In 
Encouraged by Jenkins Lloyd-Jones to come to the frontier where Unitarian male ministers refused to go, many women accepted these invitations. Bradford's own Florence Buck was one of them. According to UU historian and Meadville professor, Reverend Dr. Nicole Kirk, it is commonly accepted that Marion Murdoch was Florence Buck's life, love, and partner. Many of these first Unitarian or Universalist ministers were also what we would today call queer. In fact, many of Bradford's ministers since Buck were also queer women. As your new intern minister, I have a lot of history and culture I am walking into in this beautiful church. It is my job to be aware of it and to help you grow in your church's culture to make this a place of radical welcoming, a sanctuary that lives far beyond when I am no longer in your pulpit. Reverend Simmons goes on to say, women on the frontier had a different idea of what church would be. They believed in community and extending the home hearth to the church. They believed church was something you lived your life around, a place of support, care, where real issues were addressed. And in the male ministry of the East settled around Boston, those ministers were more concerned with debating theology, texts were deconstructed, ideas were debated. Recently in my reading about the prophetic sisterhood, I learned that male ministers of the time were sitting in their office all week long writing their sermon. Nothing else. No pastoral care. No sweeping or shoveling. No blessings. No welcoming rituals. No visiting the sick. No running up and down the stairs to the nursery to tend to the babies. These women were making their way into ministry by doing everything else that their male counterparts were not doing. In fact, in the beginning, these women were doing everything but preaching, and they would read their male colleagues' sermons that were sent to them from Boston. Later, they realized they too had something to say, and they preached. Their ministerial authority, as well as their theology, was often hinged upon them being the mother god of the mother god, father god concept. Thus, visiting parishioners at all hours of the day and night, having congregants into their homes, inviting themselves into the homes of their parishioners, physically nurturing their congregants, taking care of them when they were ill, being there during a birth, was both a way that the women were accepted as faith leaders and something they really struggled with. Many of them were questioning whether they could be wives and mothers if they were also ministers. One can see how ministers, women ministers in the time of Florence Bach and beyond, were seeing examples of creating radical sanctuary for that time but also putting themselves in positions where boundaries could become really difficult to manage. Boundaries are a huge topic in seminary, and it is being instilled to us in anything that anything that puts us in power over our congregants crosses a line. That line will halt the growth of the church. Remember, I want you to be here celebrating your 300th anniversary as ghosts or reincarnates or whatever it may be in your descendants. 
I mean it. Today we are far more aware of the pain people store in their bodies, in their memories, and in their experiences of community. Our ministers in the time of the prophetic sisterhood were trying to do it all in order to build their congregations. It was totally noble. And we have an opportunity to use what they learned, and we can do even better. We can build sanctuary with greater awareness, thus building trust. Let me give you an example. Imagine a person walks into a church, say Bradford. The person has a great deal of trepidation to come here. Are they really living boldly and leading bravely like the sign out front says, they may question? The greeter realizes she doesn't recognize the newcomer and drops into welcome mode. Maybe it's even Carolyn. <laughs> right? The greeter focuses on what this new person is interested in. They exchange niceties and are acquainted with the service that's about to happen. The greeter says she will check in on them later. The new person feels welcomed. They proceed away from the welcoming table to find their seat. Another member, a few feet away, perhaps closer to the door of the sanctuary, thinks that new person should have been more warmly greeted. They jump up. They jump in front of the newcomer and they perform a big welcome, pulling the person in for warmth, for a lovely welcoming hug. This embrace instantly triggers all the trauma this person had spent the last 20 years trying to overcome, culminating in a gathering in gathering the courage to step back into any church. A church may have been the source of all of their nightmares. They turn and leave, never to appear in church again. One UU minister I know tells me that she hates worship that requires hand-holding because her childhood was filled with a lot of pain where her own mother broke bones in her hands. If she is told, please hold hands with the person next to you, inevitably she is asked about the ridges and the bumps in her fingers. In the last few years here at Bradford, we have stopped the tradition of turning to greet your neighbor. Some congregants really miss the big hugs, the embraces. Some newcomers felt very overwhelmed having to introduce themselves and have attention directed at them when they barely knew anyone and were just checking out this new community. Some congregants have expressed that it put them on the spot and made them have to physically have contact they didn't feel ready for. I certainly love that our ministers of the prophetic sisterhood resonated with a feminine, universalist deity rather than a Christian Trinitarian. I so relate to their ideas about forgiveness and love, of calling back into the community. Yet the way the prophetic sisterhood was ministering and the theology they were embracing was sometimes prone to corruption. And being emotionally intimate with congregants is messy at best. And we don't want your relationships with one another to be messy either. 
If we all start with a culture of consent and acceptance, we will be here and be able to build this congregation and have that 300-year celebration someday. Why can't we just ask if the person wants their hand shook, if they prefer a fist bump or, or a hug or just a smile? I know I give an amazingly warm handshake, let me tell you. In hearing this sermon, you might be wondering if you've made someone uncomfortable in the past. Take a deep breath. Forgive yourself. You didn't know. That discomfort may call you to think about what you do in the future. I'm going to call us to heal this today. We today can practice a culture of consent and make this church a place of radical sanctuary. After the service, I'm going to go to the back of the church near the coffee, and you can come and greet me there, and I invite you to ask me what's comfortable and how I want to be greeted. And whatever answer I give, I encourage you to accept it and know it's not about you. It's about creating radical sanctuary. Blessed be and amen.